Welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here. I am Pastor George Gray, and welcome to my Between Meals video podcast, where we talk about apologetics, the Bible, and try to figure out how to live in this world that we're living in right now with a consistent Christian faith. I'm very thankful that you're here. While you're here, do me a favor while you're going through the video. If you like what you hear, click down to the subscribe button, hit the notification bell, and every time that I upload a new video, you will get notified, and it will also help grow this channel. Um, if you like what you hear, then please uh, share and comment, and uh, that would be really great to help get God's Word out to more people, and that's really what all this is about. So over the last few weeks, we've been talking about progressive Christianity and some of its effects in the world. Uh, and I had a different idea for today, and I'm going to move it kind of to next week, but we're still talking about the progressive Christian ideology and its effect on uh, on society and, and the church. But I'm going to uh, turn a little bit and go towards something a little bit more specific today. This might not be as long as a normal video, um, but that's okay. This topic is still very, very important. And um, yeah, I think it can help us and challenge us all at the same time. So earlier this week, I was going through some news and I found an article that, uh, to be honest, I was hoping was some sort of satire or some sort of joke, something like a Babylon Bee article. And it wasn't. It was a real legitimate article from the New York Post. Um, and this this has been all over the world, uh, and this is happening right here in my own home state of New York, uh, and this was a parent filing a legal request to marry their adult child. Uh, no, I'm not kidding about this at all. Um, this parent is seeking to have the incest laws basically revoked so they can marry their own child, and I'm not talking about a stepmom who is thinking about marrying a stepchild after divorce or something like that. I'm talking about a mom who wants to marry the child they gave birth to, their legitimate biological child. I can't even imagine uh, how anyone got to this point. Um, but what's even worse is that along with this particular article, you have advocacy groups trying to help these people through their legal battle, because this is going to be a massive legal challenge. There's some lawyers who are saying that they don't have a chance because the incest laws are there for a good reason. But, you know, um, the idea here that this is somehow okay, it makes you stop and it makes us wonder what in the world is going on in our world that makes people think that this is okay. Now, the obvious question is, at what point does society let go of what is moral and immoral? And how do you define what is moral, immoral, or amoral? Okay, so most of us know what the difference between moral and immoral is, and um, but not too many people are understanding of the term amoral. So amoral means something that has no moral value of itself. It doesn't have the ability to be right or wrong. Uh, it just is what it is. Now, for example, breakfast, you would think, would be amoral, right? Uh, it doesn't have a moral value. Breakfast can't sin. It's not good or bad. It just it's It's breakfast, right? Now, that used to be true, but the way our society is going, that's not actually the case. For example, if you're a vegan, then today for breakfast, I murdered two chickens and a pig, <laughs> uh, which makes my breakfast suddenly no longer amoral but immoral. Now, if that's you, I just want to point something out to you. Uh, yes, I did. Yes, they were delicious, and I'm probably going to do it again tomorrow. 
just to say, just so that you know that. You know, as silly as that might sound, this is a question that really looms over the, the, our moral decision making. And something we need to really understand that this is actually something that, that this is a, this is an argument that's actually going on today. And the argument is really simple. Do my feelings, and think about this carefully. Do my feelings have value in a moral, immoral, or amoral argument? Does, do the way I feel about something, does that have value in any of these arguments. So do my feelings determine whether or not something is moral or immoral or amoral? Now, to spare you the deep anguish that you might be feeling right now, the answer is no, they don't. Um, not at all. Like, not at all. So think about this. In order for your feelings to carry enough weight to determine what is or is not moral, then they need to transcend space and time and matter and serve as the only standard for right and wrong for all life in all places at all time. In order for your feelings to determine or have value in what is right and what is wrong, they have to transcend space, time, and matter and be the standard for all things. So essentially, in order for your feelings to have value in a moral or immoral argument, you need to be God. And for people who don't believe in God, this becomes a problem because you cannot become the thing that you don't believe in. Now, as I was going through this particular article, the very first thing that came to my mind was uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, the passage, Expel the Immoral Brother. And uh, this passage uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 8, this has been used for years and years and years as kind of a baseball bat to beat people into submission of some sort of moral authority. Uh, and it's been very, very misused. So instead of being used as a warning to the church to not remain silent on significant biblical moral issues, that we are supposed to take a stand. We're actually supposed to have an opinion, and we're supposed to live that opinion out and hold each other accountable to that. Let me give you an example. This is 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 8. So let me uh, jump over to here. And this says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles. Basically saying even heathens don't go this far. And listen to what he's saying is that a man has his father's wife. Sound familiar? Okay. Now... And you are puffed up, puffed up about this. Now, this this section where it says, "And you are puffed up," what this is saying is that the, the the Corinthian church was actually proud that they accepted this person into their midst because they had so much grace in their heart. Look at the people. We won't judge anybody. We'll take everybody. And I want you to really think about that. Paul is condemning the church that he started, by the way because they have strayed so far away from scriptural truth that they are allowing blatant immorality in their midst in the name of grace and acceptance. Sound familiar? Sounds a whole lot like about what's uh, what's going on in the church today. Uh, so let, let, let's keep reading. It says, but you are puffed up and have, and, uh, and have not rather mourned, I don't even feel bad about it, 
that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, as absent in the body but present in the in the spirit, I've already judged as though I was present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my along with my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh hand him over to Satan, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Even if you care about this person, you get them out of your sight so that they may be sifted, so they may be dealt with, and this impurity may be taken out of their life, and they may be made better. Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep uh, keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So I hope you can see that this passage is not a blanket license to toss people out of the church in their ear because they had a moral failing. We're really, really good at that. But it's a warning to the church against just accepting immorality in our midst under the guise of grace. When he says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, he's not just just he's not just saying, "Hey, look, this guy's gonna you know this guy's gonna 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 be bad for you." What he's saying is, when you accept this kind of stuff into your midst, it will become normal and accepted among you. Think about this: the sin we tolerate as normal will be the sin that actually cripples us and our message. When we accept sin into the church and we just think, you know what, this is just the way it is, that same sin will cripple us. It will cripple the power of God in our lives. It will cripple the power of God in the church, and it will cripple our ability to move the message of the gospel out into the world. It will actually end our ability to do the very thing that God has asked us to do. So this whole idea of accepting immorality in our midst in the name of grace will actually negate the grace that we actually have to offer people, and that is the grace that leads to salvation. But in the passage, it does bring to light a very important question. Where is the line, and how firm a stand should we take on it? See, one of the things that Paul doesn't do is, when you when you think about the, the, uh, uh, the uh, type of immorality that we have in our world today, he doesn't give us clear black and white ways of looking at it because we're very much disconnected from the society that he lives in, the society that we live in today. So they're two very different things, but the underlying concept is the same. We can't just accept this stuff into our midst. So let me let me show you some things that have been in our world today that um, are just accepted. Okay, here is a uh, uh, a TED Talk speaker <sighs> trying to say that pedophilia pedophilia is a normal sexual orientation and we should just accept it. This was a TED Talk. These are supposed to be like the deep thinkers of our day trying to make us think about things that are new. This is someone saying that people who want to sleep with children should be viewed now as normal. It should be totally okay. We should accept it, and we should accept them in the normal society because, hey, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Okay. Uh, 
Is that moral, immoral, or amoral? How about this one? Uh, twins in Belgium who were euthanized uh, because they were both going blind. You know, people live a long time today blind. There's actually ways to get on with life, and it, it seems to be okay. People can do this. But they decided they didn't want to live anymore. So the government just, in quite simple terms, allowed them to be put down. And society is praising this as, like, some sort of moral advancement. It's really, really sad. Uh, how about this one? Uh, transgender athletes that are arguing over who gets to play girls' sports. So much for women's rights. So much for all the advancement that women ha women have made in their uh, in their uh, for themselves in the la over the last hundred years. Let's just all wipe it out right now because we got people who don't understand biology. How about this one? University bans a Christian group for refusing to allow gay members of the student body to become leaders in this Christian group. So let's get this straight. You got a Christian group who is now banned by the university for being Christian. Sure. That 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 sounds about right for the world that we live in. Why not? Here's an abortion activist that uh thinks that um abortion should be celebrated just like babies should be celebrated, things like baby showers. So you should have abortion showers. You should throw parties for people who have gone out to murder their child. Here's a weird one for you. This is a mom who has decided to carry and give birth to a child for her gay son and his partner. Now, my understanding is the way this worked is the egg came from this guy's partner's sister. His sperm mom carried it, and at the bottom you see the picture of the baby. And this is heralded as advancement. This is morality at its finest, apparently. Here's another good one. This is a church that fired their pastor. This is a Christian church, at least that's what they're saying, that fired their pastor for putting on the church sign that homosexuality is still a sin. The church decided that to publicly announce that homosexuality is still a sin in the eyes of God, according to Scripture, was too much, it was unfair, it was unloving, it was homophobic, and it was wrong, and this guy needed to just be taken out. We, we needed to get rid of this guy and actually get someone who was going to come in and teach us the real word of God. Okay. This is just a sampling of some of the complete and total nonsense that's going on in our society today. When we talk about morality and standards, even in the church, there are very few purely, uh, pure, identified, irrevocable, universally accepted standards. We're seeing this shift in cultural moral values and cultural moral absolutes. Uh, and um, even in the church, you think about this, as I've said in the past, the majority of the church 
knows God's word. They know what it really says, and I think they want to follow it. But the problem is there's a huge majority of the church that is just staying quiet. We're going right back to Paul's conversation with the Corinthians. You cannot just accept this and think you're doing good by being quiet and having grace. You need to stand up and do something about this. You can't just, oh, look look how accepting we are. Look how amazing we are. None of that makes a hill of beans worth a difference because our ability to be accepting of somebody else's sin does not gain them entrance into heaven. It doesn't bring them forgiveness. It does nothing of value in their life except confuse them when we try to tell them that they need to repent and come to Christ and accept his lordship in their life because we've never told them anything about their behavior was wrong before. We just accepted it. So why do I need to repent about something that you didn't have a problem with just a couple of months ago? This becomes a big issue. And this is what's going on in the church. This silent majority is actually allowing, is actually unfortunately, unwittingly feeding the problem. And we think by being quiet, we're hanging on that we're somehow supporting everybody from behind the scenes where really all we're doing is pouring gasoline on a, gasoline on a fire. Our inaction is actually seen as action and approval. Now, it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that the voice of biblical compromise is growing very fast within the church. I've been reading articles about denominations and pastors all around the country who have signed statements supporting Planned Parenthood because this is the, this is their words, this is the morally right thing to do, the morally right thing to do somehow is to support Planned Parenthood from a Christian perspective, okay? Now, I think the reason why the voice in the church, this this voice of compromise is growing so fast, because it seems to be one of the only voices that's actually being spoken in the church. You see, denominations and preachers when they go off the rails of historical scriptural orthodoxy, when they, when they stray from that path that Jesus set us on 2,000 years ago, there are two problems that ends up, end up happening there. The first problem is they're allowed to do it. So they do it, and somehow the church has quietly, whatever, endorsed this, uh, either endorsed this by action or endorsed it by inaction. If the church is allowing it, that's that's only one half of the problem. The other half of the problem is that the people in the building are staying there. You see, if you sit through a message about accepting immorality in our lives as normal because God has somehow changed his mind, if you're going to sit there and be be gracious throughout it and you're going to leave that day and you're just going to agree, you know what, I, I can't, I'm not going to accept this. Okay, that's fine. There's there's grace. That's wonderful. That's you know, I I I you know, kudos to you for having the strength to actually not be rude and just storm out. But here's the question. Are you coming back next week? And are you putting money in that plate? Are you coming back next week with your family? and allowing them to sit under that kind of teaching? Are you bringing them back so that they can be slowly indoctrinated over a period of time? See, the most dangerous part about false teaching is not the false teacher. It's the fact that we go back, that we keep we keep sitting through these things. Because if you think about this, the more often we listen to a lie, the more willing we are to believe it down the road. 
see if you I think it was Kennedy that said it said it if you if you if you uh, tell a lie often enough, eventually people will believe it because they don't have any reason not to. Why would we sit under that? Why would we support that? Why would we continually just give ourselves over to that? Is it because we don't want to rock the boat? I got news for you. Someone's rocking the boat. And it's either going to be the people hanging on to historical scriptural orthodoxy, the way that Jesus taught it, the way his word wrote is written, that, that strength, that historical understanding. We're either going to lean on that or we're going to allow the more liberal side, the sinful side, the embracing and the 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 uh, non-scriptural side to come in and change the church in all the wrong ways. We got to decide which direction we're going to be moving in. We can't. You can't. You can't do it in both. In Second Timothy four, Paul gives Timothy a warning that most of us are very, very, uh, very, very familiar with. Uh, now check this out. He says, "For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine." But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap for themselves, uh, heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. So the time is coming when the church, we're talking about people of God, are no longer going to endure sound teaching. Now, most of us are very familiar with this passage. This is a very commonly preached on uh, passage, uh, especially if you're dealing with any kind of charismatic church uh, or Bible-believing church, I should say. Um, but there's a lot of people who will quote this, but they forget the first, the the previous two verses, uh, chapter four, verses one and two. It reads like that. It reads like this. Let me uh, click that over. It says, "I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom." Listen to this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Now listen to these next parts. Convince rebuke, <laughs> rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. See, the key to verses three and four are verses one and two. Always be ready. Always be ready. Standing, standing fast, knowing that it's Jesus who is going to judge the living and the dead. Always be ready in season and out of season to convince to convince someone means that you need to actually know the truth. You need to be so familiar with your argument and your side of the, the, the discussion that you can actually put forward a convincing argument. This is very rare in a lot of churches. We tell people to go talk to our pastor or, ah, you know what, brother, um, just, just trust in Jesus. Uh, that's great, and you should trust in Jesus, but you know what, Christian? You should have answers. You should know your Bible well enough because it's your faith. If you believe that Christ died on the cross for your sin, and you believe you're going to heaven, that you are part of the kingdom of priests that have been left here to, to continue on his message to bring the hope of salvation to other people, then you should know that message enough to bring a convincing argument to those people. You should at least know it enough to be able to give your testimony to people who need to hear it. That's the very least that we could do. So we love the teaching part, but now think about this. Am I as willing to rebuke as I am to teach? And as a minister, am I willing to rebuke the people in my church? As my, Am I as willing to do that as I am, am to teach? If I stand up there on a Sunday and I give a good message, that's really great, but if I'm not willing to step on your toes, if I'm not willing to push back against you, 
that I'm failing in my, in my responsibilities. And I think anyone who knows me well enough knows that I don't have that inhibition. I'm usually too much in the other direction. But, you know, it's six to one, six to another. Um, so uh, <laughs> uh, I've never been accused of being uh, subtle, um, at least not very often. So we should be able to answer the, quest- answer the questions of, uh, of, of skeptical people. We should be able to answer the questions of people who object to the moral authority of the scriptures. Now, think about this. One of the big arguments, this is us getting back to progressive Christianity, one of the big arguments in the progressive Christian movement is against the authority of scripture. That scripture is not our ultimate moral authority on everything, right? So the idea here is that there cannot be, and this is the progressive view, that there cannot be a single universal moral authority on everything that, that, that just can't exist. The central theme within this ideology is that there is no universal truth. There's just simply your truth, okay? There's there's your truth. So I may believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, that it's timeless and applicable to all people, and that's my truth. But maybe your truth is that it's just a book about God. You see, that's your truth, Now, I may believe in the biblical definition of marriage, that it's between one man and one woman for life, but you may believe in a open polyamorous relationship. And hey, as long as the two of you agree, there shouldn't be anything wrong. Now, you think about this. I'm believing that God is the one who gets to set the example for me and tell me what marriage is. See, my authority is outside of me. But you got the other side— Their truth is an open polyamorous marriage, so they get to define truth for themselves. Now, according to progressive theology, both of those views, both both mine and theirs, are equally true. Think, Think about that just for a second. Now, on its face, it's just crazy. The idea is just absolutely insane to believe that both of those things can be equally true. So it's not just crazy by itself. It is. It's also logically fallacious. So let me get. Let me give you a, um, an understanding here. Two opposing views cannot be equally true. Okay, I cannot believe. Okay, I cannot believe that the Bible is both the Word of God and not the Word of God at the same time. So both of those opposing views cannot be true at the same time. It cannot be God and not God. That's just ridiculous. But this is the view of the progressive Christian, that God can be both there and not there all at the same time. This is the moral dilemma that we're dealing with today. My truth versus the truth. And this is a question that you need to wrestle with, Christian. How do, I, how do you know the difference between right and wrong? How do you know the difference between moral and immoral? The second question is, how committed are you to that understanding? Once you get the answer to that first question, how committed are you to living out that answer? So let's go back to our original question. Our original question was, do your feelings have value in a moral, immoral, or amoral argument? Now, the answer is far simpler than you might think, and it's like I said before, it's a no, your feelings, how you view something is not applicable to this. But let's 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 play both sides and see how how it works out. So if you say yes, your feelings 
have moral value in a situation, then what you are honestly saying is that you are the source of truth, that you are the foundation of what defines good and bad, okay? It also means that your truth will change based on your likes and desires, your understanding of a given subject. And something may be true for you today, but then not true down the road. Now, see, the problem with this is that if you agree with that statement that, yes, my truths are are for me, that's, it, you may think that, but my truth is what's important to me. If you If that's what you believe, then you also have to agree that that is also true for everybody else. So everybody else else can have their own truth. And if their truth collides with your truth, if theirs is opposite of yours, then really you're at that point you're at a survival of the fittest kind of a situation. And if your truth loses, then your truth was less valuable than theirs. This is a horribly problematic viewpoint to have. It's just fraught with issues. Now, if you're a Christian and you get posed that same question. If you're a consistent Christian, and this may seem like a little bit of stepping on your toes, but that's okay because that's partially what I'm here for. If you are a Christian, then you only have one answer to that question. Do my feelings have moral value within an issue? If you're a Christian, you only have one answer, and that's no. They don't. The very fact that I have moral views that may be contradictory to Scripture is proof that I am both a human and a fallen person. So therefore, I have some work to do. I have to adjust my thinking to line up with the, uh, to line up with God's word. How you feel, what you want, and what you may or may not like are inescapably irrelevant to the moral value of an issue. The understanding of right and wrong do not come from us as Christians. They come from the written word of God and the written word of God alone. Now, as a believer, we do not adjust life to fit to our moral values. As a believer, we adjust our moral values according to the word of God. We change who we are based on who God is, not the other way around. Uh, If you look at Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, and I apologize, I didn't put these up on the slide. It says this, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of service. Keep reading. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That means you change who you are. You're not changing who God is. Uh, that you may prove what is, uh, uh, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we change who we are. We adjust who we are because God and his word is our moral authority in all things. All things. This is not just about the religious parts of our life. This is about our entire life, every aspect, how we view the people around us, how we view our careers, how we view uh, what we think is a is a, a, a little lie that's not that bad versus a big lie that's really bad, how we view our sexuality, how we view our sexual identity, how we view marriage, how we view finances, how we view family. All of it is spelled out for us in the word of God, and we adjust our lives to fit to that because we are under the lordship of Christ. There is no our truth. There is simply his truth. 
And the rest of our life is used to bring ourselves into alignment with that truth. And that is why Scripture tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We work out our salvation. We fight against the old man and to create the new man underneath the word that's in alignment with the word of God because that is how it's supposed to work. We are, we are not perfect on our own. We don't get to gain, we don't get to enter into heaven as we are. We are, we come to Christ a broken vessel and he, he, he helps us and we adjust ourselves to line up with him. It's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to take the rest of our lives, but that's okay. This is the Christian life. This is the Christian journey. This is what we're supposed to be doing. So we start to learn about God's standards. So how do we go about doing this? How do we go about learning about the standards of God? What, what is the process that we use? Uh, I think there's a couple of really easy ways to do this. First thing, you can start by subscribing to this channel and checking out the other teachings that we have uh, and, and the other service videos that are there. There's a whole lot of them a week. I, I add uh, two every week. Um, but most importantly, here's what you can do. You can get a Bible. You can get a Bible and you can start reading it, okay? You start reading it and you start learning. You start researching the stuff. You, If God took the time to write down his will for us and put it in a book, then we should probably be willing to take the time to read it. I think that's the least that we can do. That's all I got for you this week. We'll be back next week with some more on progressive Christianity. I hope this helps. Again, like, subscribe, comment. I'll see you next week.